I'm hot and cold at the same time. This is a very dark period. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode of Cinenation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cinenation, we discuss the film genres and the tropes and stories within them. This month, we are covering the fan favorite genre, as we talked about before, and that's the fictional band slash singer genre. Today, we have a singer movie we're talking about. But also today, we have a special guest that is joining us for today's movie. It's our first trio episode in a while. Uh, we'd like to welcome back uh, Hunter Barcroft. Hunter. Welcome back to the show. Feels good to be back with both of you guys. Feels weird. I'm not gonna lie. I know. I don't know. Yeah, I only last time all three of us were doing a podcast years, like years ago. Years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mostly like, it's just been you yeah. and I lately. But yeah, it's been. Uh, it's good to be back. It feels really weird though, for sure. A little nostalgic. Yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. Uh, and today, because we this is a movie. Originally, Hunter was gonna be on it. It was just me, Hunter, and me. But Thomas is like, no, I really want to be on this episode uh and he ended up leading the entire research this episode so that shows you guys how important this film is to to, to thomas uh and today we were talking about the 2007 cult classic walk hard the dewey cox story but before we dive into that movie thomas can you give us a little bit of, like brief like uh recap of what we talked about this month with the fictional band slash singer genre one thing we talked about that's definitely going to come up today is how important the fictional music is yeah. in these movies uh something you're going to see i think with any of the the movies that have done really well in this genre not just the ones we've talked about and are talking about this month but but a lot of the ones from our letterbox list that have been successful or been beloved is because the music within the film is actually good it's yeah. it's really important to make sure especially if you're making a movie about the success of a band to make the song sound like something that you could actually be successful making. Yeah. They can't suck. It, they just really can't it's, suck. It's the thing. Yeah. It's great that it's great that we started the month off with that thing you do, which is literally about one song yeah. and, and how important one song can be. Uh, and then we, we, we talked about it with almost famous last week and making sure that that song, that those songs fit in with the, the other music that was being uh, made at the time. But that that's that's going to be one of the one of the most important things you see. And then we've also discussed uh, the struggles of fame, you know, <laughs> uh, band arguments, bands breaking up, people cracking under pressure. Uh, that's that's something that you see in a lot of of real stories, real musical biopics, which is what is going to be parodied for us today. But we've also seen it, you know, throughout the throughout the fictional bands that we've looked at, it's hard to stay together. It's hard to be a band, especially once you start getting traction. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like as you said, it says a parody film. And so the thing with about this one is like, there really is like, it is taking the tropes of a musical biopic or, and in turn the fictional band movies, like, like making fun of them, but also like showing you kind of how sometimes paint by number. Some of these films can be, um, mm. And I think with this movie, as we'll dive into, it's it's an interesting parody film because it's not fully. I think one of the reviews you pulled, Thomas, is like it's it's not fully over the top. And a lot of parody films can be very over the top. I think Ebert might have mentioned like Top Secret, like the spy genre uh, parody. Um, and and this one has over the top moments, but it's not like 
specifically in the music, there's a few over the top moments, but it's pretty like it's tr the music's trying to be like like real songs that would probably came up at that point with a little bit of a comedic spin to it. Um, yeah. I feel so. Yeah, I guess uh, Thomas. I guess tell us about Walk Hard. Yeah, so Walk Hard is the 2007 film. Uh, it's available at Walk Hard: The Dewey Cox Story. It's available on HBO Max to stream currently, and it charts the entire life of Dewey Cox, uh, one of the most successful recording artists in American history, starting from his humble beginnings in the 1950s through his superstardom in the 60s and his struggle with addiction and attempted comebacks through the 70s and 80s. Uh, the cast includes John C. Riley as Dewey Cox, Jenna Fisher as Darlene Madison, Dewey's second wife, uh, Tim Meadows, Chris Parnell, and Matt Besser as the Dewey Cox Trio, his backup band, uh, Kristen Wiig as his first, first wife, Edith Cox, and uh, literally anyone else who was in comedy <laughs> in 2007 <laughs> in supporting true. roles. This is true. Um, a little quick crew intro, Jake Kasdan wrote and directed the film. Uh, Judd Apatow wrote and produced the film. A couple interesting little picks from the... Uh, from the crew, the director of photography, Uta Brizowitz, Brizowitz, I don't know how to pronounce <laughs> her last name, um, has since become a very prolific TV director. She um, She's in, directed episodes of Westworld, Stranger Things, Jessica Jones, and she is directing the upcoming CSI reboot pilot. Oh, wow. So, okay. So there you go. Hunter, uh, why did you why did you pick this movie for us? Uh, because this is a movie that I've thought about uh, regularly since I've watched it like years and years and years ago. And uh, I honestly, it's one of those things where like someone will always make a reference to this movie in conversation, and you'll kind of like stop what you're doing and make eye contact with that person. You're like, did you just did you just reference Walk Hard? And you're like, I love that movie. And then you have this weird moment. Like I've had that moment with Dustin, a friend of ours, and I've. Had that moment with Thomas, uh, but it's this movie that like I don't, I feel like not many people talk about, but it's it's hilarious, man. Like it's really it's it it stands uh it stands up still. I think and there's parts of it that don't, but there's parts of it that I think really do. Um, <laughs> and I I don't know when I think about fictional band films or fictional singer films, I um. It's hard not to go to this because it is like such a direct parody of Walk the Line. It's like such a pointed thing that i i don't know it's hard not to immediately almost think of that for me but yeah and brandon this was just your second time revisiting this film you're not as you're not as well steeped in it as hunter and i might be first time revisiting it uh the first time i saw the film i watched it when it came out on dvd like at the at like prime movie gallery or blockbuster or wherever it's one that i wanted to see in theaters uh i mm -hmm. feel like i was 16 at the time so technically couldn't get into radar movie by myself uh and it was one that did not stay long in theaters mm -hmm. in, in my nope. hometown uh and no no one that i knew wanted to go see it so it wasn't like one where like i tried to make an effort to really go see like this film by myself because like my parents my i don't think really had an interest in it and it was it was one that was kind of like oh yeah it's because it's and you'll probably go into this with history but like it's john c Riley coming off of, like stepbrothers i think right it's right around that uh, time. Coming off Talladega Nights Talia before Nights, sorry, Okay, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, because Talladega Nights is like oh, oh, 05, oh, 06. Um, mm -hmm. So it's like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what I was expecting coming into it. And I remember not really liking the movie the first time I saw it. And 
this is kind of the key to parody films that I want to talk about too. Is that like, if you don't know that if you're not like in on the joke, you're going to miss mm-hmm. the point. And yeah. this is, this is a type film where like, I just saw I was like, Oh, they're parodying like walk the line and Ray. Um, Cause those are the two big things they pull from. But like when you really dive into it, like now rewatching it, I'm going, Oh, it's like, it's every single one of these people in music at this point in time it's the Mm -hmm. he's going he's going from buddy holly to roy orbison to johnny cash to elvis to uh to the beach boys into david bowie he's doing all these different things um and that's testament to john c Riley. um so yeah (laughs) coming coming to this again was an interesting uh experience because now i'm i'm more in on the joke and even, and I'll say this too, even after rewatching it this time, I didn't, I still didn't love it. I really liked it. Um, what's kind of grown, like the appreciation has grown just the past few days of really thinking about it is a listening to the soundtrack. And then mm-hmm. B I watched just before this, watched a reference video on YouTube of all the references from other things that they're pulling from. It's Elvis Presley and King Creole. It's it's Roy Orbison. It's all these specific little things. It's Johnny Cash album covers for the opening mm-hmm. of the movie when he's standing. So it's like that makes me appreciate the level of detail that went into this now. It's yeah. just kind of my basic basic thoughts. All right. So just to dive into a kind of brief history of how this got made. Years 2005, like Brandon mentioned. Ray and Walk the Line have just uh, back-to-back made major critical successes slash award show bait out of the uh, the life stories of Ray Charles and Johnny Cash. Also going on elsewhere in the film industry, Judd Apatow, who after working for comedies in years, has finally made it to the top with the release of Anchorman and 40-Year-Old Virgin. He's got the clout to really make whatever he wants at this point. So he starts calling all his friends and says, Hey, what projects do you have? What do you want to do? These phone calls would eventually lead to uh, Superbad, which was a script that Seth Rogen had had stashed in a drawer for years and years and years. It would also lead to Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which was a script that Jason Siegel was working on. But uh, one particular call Apatow made was to Jake Kasdan, former director of many episodes of Freaks and Geeks. I think he did like four out of the the singular season of freaks and geeks also son of uh son of friend of the podcast <laughs> lawrence caston who came up last week as uh someone who championed almost famous so uh, oh yeah caston's caston's are showing up a lot this month it apatow had just produced jake's third film tv set and asked jake hey what do you want to do for your next movie and uh caston said have you seen walk the line or ray because caston had loved both of them and he had been kicking around the idea of a parody of those Cradle to the Grave musician biopics. And not just those two, but like everything that had come before it. Because it was especially seeing Ray and Walk the Line two years back to back that he started noticing how formulaic those movies can get. Mm-hmm. And so that idea really struck home for Apatow, whose grandfather had been a moderately successful record producer in the 60s. So that was something that, that Apatow had always been interested in. Okay. So he loved it. And Kasten said within 24 hours, Apatow had him pitching this to Sony. Wow. <laughs> Talk about that's, that's, that. That's the amount of pull that Apatow had at this point in time. Yeah. That's insane. Exactly. Yeah. He was hot, hot, hot. Um, 
So part of Kasten's pitch for the movie was that he wanted to play it closer to Oscar bait than you might expect a parody film to do. Uh, so that really gave them the, the first thing they had to do to prove to Sony that this could work was find somebody who could sing, had comedy chops, but would also believably star in an Oscar bait type film. And so uh, at this point in his career, John C. Riley had already been a critical darling. He had done several films with Paul Thomas Anderson. He'd been in a big budget Oscar winning film in Chicago and he had just reestablished himself as a comedic powerhouse in Talladega Nights, which Apatow had produced. Um, John C. Riley says Kasdan and Apatow basically just called him and said, "If this movie is going to happen, you have to star in it." Period. And and he and he had just and the and the Chicago he was nominated for an Oscar for that. He was nominated mm -hmm. for best supporting actor with that film. So um, so after making sure they had the right Dewey, Kasdan really wanted to make sure the music was right. So as we've seen with almost every movie this month, making the music realistic is really a make-or-break aspect for a fictional music film. Mm. He first recruited his regular composer-slash-music director, Michael Andrews, who is perhaps best known. Brandon, do you know, you know where, where everyone knows Michael Andrews from? Is that, uh, oh gosh, is it, is it Donnie Darko? Yep, okay. yep. He did, he, <laughs> he did the, the Mad World okay. remake for um, All Around You Are Familiar Faces. Yeah. So Andrews uh, set up a studio in Los Angeles. He invited John C. Riley out to collaborate and started assembling his writing team. Um, for the core writing team, he recruited singer-songwriter Dan Byrne and prolific producer Mike Viola, who we just yeah. talked about two weeks ago. Well, with, yeah, with that thing you do. He was the he was the the hidden voice of the lead singer of the Wonders because yep. they didn't want to they didn't want to credit him as the lead singer. So um, Byrne and Viola had never met before, but they launched right into it they rented out rooms in a motel near the recording studio for six months and just wrote songs every day they said by the end they had written over a hundred songs jesus <laughs> meanwhile while they were holed up in this hotel room writing uh, andrews continued reaching out to artists that he knew to find some of the more specific sounds um marshall crenshaw whose work in the 80s drew enough comparisons to buddy holly that he was cast as buddy holly in the movie la bomba oh. he wrote walk hard Okay. Uh, Van Dyke Parks, who collaborated with the Beach Boys during Brian Wilson's Volatile Smile era, was brought in to produce the Brian Wilson parody Black Sheep for the film, which is why that one sounds very, very accurate. Andrew also recruited an artist he was currently producing an album for, Charlie Wadhams, and convinced him to try his hand at writing a few songs. Wadhams turned in Let's Duet and Guilty as Charged. As the music was getting pinned down, it came time to round out the cast. Apatow, who... You know, we've we've talked in length on this podcast about Apatow as a producer. He is someone who always has his finger on the pulse of who's who in comedy. Yeah. yeah. Not only who is becoming big, but who has been around for forever and might not be as recognized as possible. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like he really rounded out the cast with some you know rising comedians, classic stars. He recruited everyone from legendary comedians like Harold Ramis and Phil Rosenthal to insider comedians like UCB founder Matt Besser, who, you know, wasn't necessarily a, a, a film comedian at that point. Yeah. Uh, when it came to who would embody the duality of devout Christian and se sex pot Darlene, uh, Riley was confident that his co-star in a movie he was shooting while prepping the music for the film could handle it. He was making a film called The Promotion with Jenna Fisher and Sean William Scott. 
I yeah, I knew I know of that vaguely, movie. Then. I vaguely yeah, I, remember. I, I, yeah, I remember it being. I remember a movie called Promotion at the video store that I never saw. I think they worked at like a grocery store. I, I, I I'll, believe, I'll, I'll believe you i'll believe you <laughs> i just remember like a scene from the trailer where they're like getting oh, shopping carts out of a yes, grocery store parking lot i know that i know this poster i totally remember this film but yeah I, yeah okay um, so fisher says that riley sent her the script and she just assumed she was auditioning for edith dewey's first wife <laughs> and um she said when she was finally told that she was reading for darlene she said darlene the sexy wife lady no one ever wants me for that role um but riley encouraged her to let loose in the chemistry read and the whole cast was locked pretty soon Um, the final step was training the dewey cox band music teachers were brought in to train parnell besser and meadows none of who had music experience prior for the film oh wow uh but they didn't want to have to cheat their their shots of the band so they wanted them to learn enough to pass as musicians on camera but they weren't just taught to pass as musicians on camera they were taught to mimic the popular playing styles of each decade they were playing in. Wow, that's insane. So Meadows notes that he had to learn how to play the drums in like four different styles as they were going that's, along. That is a lot of work for that role. <laughs> oh my goodness. That, the dedication yep. for yep. that, man. Meadows says it's the hardest thing he's ever had to do. And that's not even the thing oh, he's bet. remembered for mo- like most in this movie at all. Like He's one of the most memorable, <laughs> but it's not- like... No one cares about that. Well, while we're talking about why he's memorable, let's uh, we're at our favorite scene section, so let's let's dive into it. All right, Hunter, you go first. Give me give us one of your your favorite scenes. I mean, I feel like the easy answer is the uh, the scene where he cuts his brother in half because I I think that's hilarious, <laughs> and that's something that I that's a reference that comes up more often than not. The more often, right, like you know, reference someone makes obscurely, and I'm like, that scene is hilarious, man. Like it. That and the flashback to it and the fact that they like never let that bit go the entire time <laughs> is something that I love. Mm. Like the commitment to that little bit about cutting your brother in half of the machete is hilarious. <laughs> it's so funny and it's so stupid, but it works. And, and if you're listening to this podcast and you heard everything that Thomas just said and the first thing we go is the guy when he gets cut in half, this is this movie. Like yeah. it's, it's a traumatic it like, experience. Oh, a, yeah, it's not like just a parody musical film. It's like, and this kid gets cut in half at one point in the film. But it's hilarious. The way they cover it is hilarious, man. It's so I love funny. the build up too, where the the brother is just doing so much dangerous stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like he could have died at any point during that day, but then it just happened to and be Dewey's fault. And it's Dewey's fault. And it's, and it's like the machete. And like, honestly, out of all those things he was doing, one of the most simplest. Like at the end of the day, like they're actually like the machetes were covered and everything, and they're just kind of playing around. Mm. Like the other stuff was like being chased by bulls. Like I love, I love the kid that plays Little Dewey too. Oh man, he's great. That kid is phenomenal, especially when they when they start to dub over his his voice. I laugh, <laughs> I laugh so hard at that. I forgot about that, and I was watching it in the rewatch, and I, I cackled. And it, t- it takes place in Alabama of all places. I, I noticed this time, Springberry, Alabama. Springberry, Alabama. Dewey. Me! I'm... I'm... I'm halved! Oh, we should have listened to Paul! Dewey, I'm cutting half pretty bad. In case y'all don't make it, then you have to be double great for the both of us. Wow, that's a lot of pressure, Nate. You can handle it, Dewey. Now run! Get Paul! <laughs> Holy shit! Also, aside, I love that Rance Howard, Ron Howard's father, pops up as the preacher in the town of Alabama in this in this movie. <laughs> this is the second uh, 
This is the second uh, Howard family reference this month because Clint Howard pops up in that thing too. His yep, son. Yep. You know who's got hands, son? The devil. The devil. Use them for holding. <laughs> and take my hand is like the most innocent song on this whole soundtrack. That's the best part. But I love what they do, like in the performance of it, where it's just like everyone starts like, like getting like basically just like sex dancing in this thing, and the parent and the parents are just like, oh my god, it's the devil, and yeah. and like these these women are just like undressing for Dewey, and it's just like a very simple like early like Buddy Holly type song of just like mm-hmm. you'd hear yeah. on the radio at at the malt shop. Like it's literally, yeah, I love, and I love that they play him. They play John C. Riley as a 14 year old boy and the rest of his little group and band as 14 year old boys. And so they, they've clearly aged him down a little bit, but not nearly like at all. Like really John C. Riley. So funny, man. They keep saying like, they keep saying that he's 14 throughout the scene because it's so easy to forget. Well, and honestly, one of my favorite lines in this entire movie is just Kristen Wiig going, you hear that? I'm Dewey's twelve-year-old girlfriend. Oh no, dude! When she's like, when he, when she said something about you're not making my dreams, he goes, "I'm fifteen years old. What do you expect from me? I got two kids and a house." She's like, "You never made my dreams come true." And he's like, "What? A house made of candy? It would melt in the sun." Like I, some of this is so well done. I was like, "Is this?" Was this in the script or was this just like them riffing? Because I honestly yeah, don't. that's something that's something Kasdan brought up when he said he started watching all these movies. Was he was like they always mention because the actors are always like playing like crazy huge ranges. I think yeah. one of the ones he brought up, and obviously this was before Kevin Spacey. You know, we learned a lot of stuff about Kevin Spacey, but um, yeah, when Kevin Spacey played Bobby Darren in, in Beyond the Sea, yeah, he was it, he was he, older than Bobby Darren was when he died. <laughs> Yeah, like Spacey was like in his forties, and I think like Bobby Darren died. He was like thirty nine. Yeah, like it was kind of insane. But Casman was like one of the things they do in all these movies is they always say like how old they are in the scene so that you can remember, and they always say <laughs> they always say like what year is it, which you'll see pop up over and over again. And this is they'll be like the sixties are a very interesting and important time. <laughs> you talking about Kristen Wiig? I love the parody of just like when he's like already making it. She's like, "You're never gonna make it, Dewey," and he's like. What do you mean? I'm going on a national tour. <laughs> <laughs> You're never gonna make it. It's 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 the people. Those side things of like the people who just like constantly try to bring Dewey down, even yeah. though he's so successful. It's the father being like, "Wrong kid died. The wrong kid like, died. Up until the point where he that, dies." Like <laughs> that was something too. That was in the news around the time that they would have been working on the script. Was it? I don't know if you remember this, but when Walk the Line came out uh johnny johnny cash's kids with his first wife were like very vocal about like how poorly his their mother was treated in that film yeah because that's all she does in the film is be like yeah you suck give up on your dreams dewey you have got to give up this dream you're never gonna make it give it up dewey what are you talking about i got a number one hit on the radio i mean i'm playing my music where people want to hear me it's everything we always wanted Edith. I never get to see you anymore. Your kids never get to see you. I don't know how to tell you this. I'm going to miss some things, okay? I'm going to miss some birthdays and some christenings. I'm going to miss some births, period, okay? Just unrealistic to think I'm going to be here for every time you have a baby. But aren't you happy? You have a beautiful new home, all your fancy new clothes and your monkey and your giraffe. Look, what else you need? How about if I get you a, uh, a crow that can talk? And I teach them phrases that I say. Good morning, honey. But it'll be a little crow talking. This ain't about no exotic pets, 
love, you stupid piece of shit! Which brings us to, I think we should, we can just throw it all into one favorite scene, but anytime Tim Meadows shows oh Jamie dude yeah Frog, it's just <laughs> for sure especially the end when he shows him viagra that was gold i forgot the, about that bit my favorite my favorite is the is just the, the first time with with the marijuana because he's like I don't, I don't know i better not do any of that i don't want to get a hangover you won't, no get a hangover. you won't get a hangover well i don't want to get it's addicted to it. it's not habit forming <laughs> well I don't, I don't want to be bad at sex it makes you good at sex it makes it even better <laughs> But I do. I, I love the whole band, and I, I I love when they get a chance to shine. Like the the scene you 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 reference the Brian Wilson sequence earlier, yeah. but um, when they really let the three of them cut loose, which uh, Tim Meadows has said too, that was was the you never pay for drugs not once was God, a little that, a little I bit improvised. He was he was just supposed to say it the first time, and then he was supposed to have. <laughs> like a third Another thing as they thing. went through and he was like you know what i'm just gonna keep saying it you never once paid for drugs but there's they're all three parnell is fantastic in that scene with the fuck yeah cats <laughs> <laughs> are you saying you don't need us no more not unless you can open your mind and learn to play the fucking theremin fuck you Dewey! yeah fuck you dewey in 20 years, not once have you thrown a woman my way. You don't think we like cheating on our wives, too? And you never once paid for drugs. Not once. You pay that, that chimp more than you pay us. I had to borrow from the chimp to get a mortgage on my house. And those stupid Siamese glass cats you get us every year for Christmas. I don't want any more Siamese glass cats. The Siamese cat is a symbol of nobility in ancient Egypt. Fuck nobility. Fuck ancient Egypt. Fuck cats. And you never paid for drugs. Not once. You slept with my wife. You slept with me too. And I've had confused feelings about that for 10 years now. And you never once paid for drugs. Not once. You're on your own, Dewey Cox. We're leaving. Well, I guess this is the end of a chapter in your life, Dewey Cox. Uh, speaking of them too, with 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 those guys, I also love all their interactions in the one scene with the Beatles. Mm -hmm. Like just that <laughs> entire scene of all of them, of just like um, uh, when they, when uh, what's the guy was who's the who's the UCP guy again? Uh, Mike Matt Besser. Besser or Matt Besser? Yep. When he's just like, you guys are almost as good as the monkeys. <laughs> like, <laughs> Jason Schwartzman as as Ringo is is I mean everyone. Paul Rudd is Everyone's pretty, the, yeah. Paul the, Rudd's like, great. fake Jack John Black Lennon great. accent that Paul Rudd's doing is ridiculous. Jack Black's just like, I'm the leader of the Beatles. I did it all. <laughs> I, sense a, I sense a riff forming. Well, and I love that guy. I don't know his name, but that, that older guy that's that's in a lot of Judd Apatow stuff at that time that plays the... Um, the Maharishi in this scene. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's another time they slip it in because another one that... Uh, that uh Kasten said he always wanted to say like where you were because that's he just he talks about how these movies move so fast that every scene in in yeah. these real biopics every scene is like super important like the only time you can drop in on these characters is like a huge moment in their life that's just the way that yeah. those those biopics work and so he was like every time you drop in you have to say what date it is you have to say who they're with it's going to be somebody who's had a profound impact on their life and you have to say where they are and so that's what I love when he's like, Beatles, please stop fighting here in India. 
don't know why you two do and let me write more songs. You know, I, I just sit here while my guitar quietly whimpers. Well, you are the quiet one, so why don't you shut the fuck up? I've got a song about an octopus. Jam it up your ass. You're lucky we still let you play drums. Mm. Wow. Seems like there's a rift happening between the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if your songs will still be shit when I'm 64. Great song. No! Stop it! You stop it! Beatles, please stop fighting here in India. Only He's let him go. Let him work it out. I do love when all of his kids start appearing. When he first sees Dewdrop, <laughs> and it's the kid from uh, kid Righteous, Righteous Gemstones. Gemstones. Yeah, I was like, oh my god, it's that kid from Righteous Gemstones. When I watched it, because I, I, you know, I haven't seen this since I started watching Righteous Gemstones. But then uh, how they keep playing up all these children. And they're, they're playing catch, like that catch. weird... He's just throwing the ball to these random people, and he's like, what's your name, Dewey, Dewey Ramin? Like, it was, like, <laughs> so... It was so well done. And they've got the little, I, The like, way they cut that the, scene... The Dewey version of yeah, the Partridge family Yeah, the way, the way they cut play. it is really great. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. I liked that scene a lot. Um, it's hard to pinpoint. Him fighting his dad with a machete was great. Yeah, I'm, I've been practicing for years. <laughs> practicing for years. <laughs> I love that guy. Hey, he cuts I, I, that ladder in half. I read an interview with that actor, and he was like, he was just so excited when they called him for this because he said, like, I've made my entire career playing like super intimidating people, and when they called me and they were like, hey, you want to play that up for fun this time? He was like, yes, absolutely. I've been waiting for this. Another scene going off going off that. Another scene I love is is when he comes. He goes, your mom died. <laughs> your mama died. Your, song. Dewey. your mama died. It was because of your song. <laughs> the radio don't your fell off the counter. Hit her on the head. He, but it's like that's the one scene. He's like, you know, his song song is kind of catchy. Yep. And they're she's like dancing me, Pa, and they start dancing. And then she just she twists, falls out the. Margot Martindale's great in this. Twist falls out the window, and they're like, "I'm okay." And then the radio, it's like, "Yeah, your song killed her. Your song killed your mama." I just wanted you to know your music kills people, dude. I love the. Uh, it's so dumb, but in the in the end when he's when he's playing. Uh, beautiful ride and they have the like montage of scenes that like never happened in the movie and they've yeah, got his yeah. dad just like pulling a gun on him in the hotel uh hallway and that's it <laughs> and they've also got the scene when they're like cops and, and parnell gets like shot up <laughs> it makes no sense oh yeah oh yeah i remember that now. yeah my other the scene i the scene i probably quote the most other than anything that tim meadow says in this movie is um when jane lynch is interviewing him and um they've got so many and he's you know we got the 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 singing the dancing the comedy and she's like wonderful comedy but i absolutely love the uh she's like you're so busy do you ever take time to stop and smell the roses and he just goes i've got no fucking sense of smell i was yeah i had the jane lynch scene down because it's like every question she asks is just like how's your kids doing how's how's the family i'm in a custody battle custody is being forced forced upon upon me me. And we're back with Mr. Dewey Cox, and we're talking about the fun he's having on his show. But right now, let's talk about your lovely wife, Darlene. How's she doing? Darlene and I separated some years ago, Gail. Oh, okay. Mm. Guess I didn't do my homework. And to answer your question, I miss her terribly. Well, that's sweet. Mm. Now tell me, why don't we talk about your parents? They've got to be proud of you. Well, my mom is dead, and my pa and I don't uh, speak to each other, so we're not very close. We can always cut around this if it gets too pathetic. Tell us about your kids. I know you got a whole slew of them. What's going on with them? 
I'm locked in a custody battle at this time. Uh, custody is trying to be forced upon me, which I don't think is right. You know, uh, if you don't want the responsibility of children, you should be able to walk away from that. And apparently a couple of my ex-wives don't feel the same. So, yeah. <laughs> but wherever my kids are, I'm sure they're watching the Dewey Cox Show on Thursday nights at 8 o'clock right after the local news. And uh, I just wanted to say to everyone out there, I'm no longer mainlining acid or smoking PCP. It's official. <laughs> um, okay. Why don't we uh, lighten it up just a bit here? Tell me, you're so busy, Dewey Cox. Do you have time to stop and smell the roses? I've got no fucking sense of smell. All right, I'm done. All right, Come okay. on now, folks. That would have been Do nice information research. to have. Yeah. Again, I, it's, it's a big overview. As I said earlier, I, I just love the way they are able to capture the music trends of every era. Mm -hmm. I think that could not be understated enough of how well they're able to do that. Um, and it's it and, and to the point of like you're going from like the Buddy High thing all the way to the ending when like they're like, oh yeah, your music's influenced rap. Mm -hmm. Like like it's, well, it's just very much little nuts that. It's like you have a whole new audience, do we? And that's and the thing is that captures very much of what actually happened in the world of music at that point is that so many artists would be big for a time, they would fall out of style, and they would try to tr chase the trends. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. like it's like you look at like disco, for example. It's like we, I talked about this before with Blues Brothers. Uh, we look at Aretha Franklin and James Brown. James Brown and Aretha Franklin being so big in R&B and soul. And then when the 70s come along, they're not as hot anymore. And they start making disco records because that's what's big right now. And that's kind of what this is capturing um, in a very unique way of just how an artist, it does technically or does usually try to like evolve over time it's just he's evolving into like literally what stuff's happening. Another thing that does this is like when they're talking about like why are you trying to sound so much like Bob Dylan? And he's just like, what if Bob Dylan's trying to sound like Dewey Cox? Mm -hmm. Like it's just like that's it's very much just like that. What that was happening at the time is that everyone's kind of copying one another. Um, if it's the Beatles copying the Beach Boys and the Beach Boys copying the Beatles and the Beatles trying to be Bob Dylan, like that was happening all the time. And this movie does a really good job of trying to capture that. In a comedic way. Uh, some people are saying that your new music sounds a lot like Bob Dylan. Well, maybe Bob Dylan sounds a lot like me. You know, how come nobody ever asked Bob Dylan why you sound so much like Dewey Cox? Mailboxes drip like lampposts in the twisted birth canal of the Coliseum. Rim job fairy teapots mask the temper tantrum. Oh, say, can you see them? Stuffed cabbages, the darling of the laundromat. The mouse with the overbite explained how the rabbit. What the hell is this song about? I have no idea. You guys are idiots. This song is very deep. A little bit on set life. It sounds like the story of filming Walkhard was just the story of, of John C. Riley, uh, in, in the best way possible. Uh, after spending almost a full year working on the Dewey Cox song catalog, by all accounts, it sounds like Riley just strolled onto set on day one, and he was just fully formed Dewey Cox. Jenna Fisher said, uh, the lead actor on any project really sets the tone if they are grumpy or demanding or moody or any of those things that colors the whole project. John brought with him to this project so much integrity, such a strong work ethic, but also a playfulness that created this kind of perfect storm that everyone wanted to work as hard as they could. 
And uh, Krumholtz said, uh, actors, God bless them, are some of the worst people I've ever met in my life. (laughs) And that always gets in the way of brilliance. When you catch one, it's like catching a lightning bug or something or a hummingbird. It's so rare. You just want to act with that person forever. The strength of that movie is John's commitment. He was on a whole other level. Wow. So Riley, you know, as opposed to the band kind of learning to like pass for all their stuff, Riley learned to sing and play all of Dewey's songs. Um, And he insisted on performing live whenever possible, especially because he liked to improv comedic moments in the performances. So like uh, the uh, May I Approach the Bench for the opening to uh, Guilty as Charged was was improv day of. Um, And like any Apatow set, improv was heavily encouraged. Uh, but what really made the film was Riley's ability to improv comedy beats while also hitting the dramatic dramatic beats in the same scene. Mm-hmm. Apatow specifically recalls in, in a longer cut. I don't think this cut made the made the uh, final film, but when uh, Harold Ramis goes to visit Dewey in prison and tells him they're speaking in in Hebrew, and uh, he tells him that he has to go to rehab. It was supposed to be drawn more drawn out, and it was supposed to have subtitles. Um, uh-huh. you know, the, the joke kind of becomes that you don't know what they're talking about until he says like yeah. rehab. And then you're like, Oh, rehab. But, uh, <laughs> when they were filming the scene, John C. Riley didn't speak he- uh, Hebrew and, uh, learned all of his lines phonetically for the whole scene. And Apatow notes that Riley didn't, had no idea what he was saying, but he knew the exact beat in the dialogue that he had to start crying and he hit it every single time they shot wow. the scene. <laughs> That's insane. That's incredible. That honestly yeah. is incredible. Uh, along with the improvisational nature of the film's dialogue came a very by-the-seat-of-the-pants approach to uh, booking the music cameos in the film. They, that was the oh, only God. thing they didn't really have locked down when they started shooting. It was just... Uh, they, they, they knew that they wanted to portray a lot of real music icons, and um, they wanted to recruit some wi- real musicians to play themselves in the final scene because they, they wanted it all to... They wanted the whole film to maintain the illusion that Dewey Cox was a real person. They want you to walk out of the movie and be like, "Wait a minute, was that was that a real guy?" <laughs> they have Riley playing a version of Dewey Cox, the end was like the actual Dewey Cox, so it's just <laughs> Riley in makeup. So it it really just came down to Ap- Apatow and also Andrews calling a lot of their contacts, uh, but eventually they were able to secure names like Jack White. Uh, I think it was really funny. They they said when they were thinking about who to who to play Elvis, they said a real rock star has to play Elvis. And they said in 2007, the only person who was at like rock star level like Elvis used to be was Jack White. So so that's that's the last thing I was going to bring up was Jack White as Elvis because I think Watch he's out. phenomenal. <laughs> What was that? I, I, I know Kung Fu. I, I, it's, it's like I know He just starts mumbling and they're like, what, what yeah, the hell is he talking about? And he, but it's like eyes are closed too. His eyes are closed when he's doing. Oh yeah, watch there out. was so much stuff on the cutting room floor. Also, the guy—it's—it's it's in the extended cut. But the guy that had just like—and this guy never went on to do anything. But he was like kind of the standout comedic relief in Accepted, and he got cast to play um, Jerry Garcia in the in the scene set in like the the late '60s. And you see him. You can see him in the background of the theatrical oh, cut that but there is there is a, yeah. a, a scene in the extended cut where they go talk to him but yeah i mean they were able i mean i think the craziest honestly is they got jack i still know how they got jackson brown to do this but um oh. <laughs> they had jackson brown jewel eddie vetter ghostface killer yeah ghostface it's really Killa. funny jenna fisher has a story about how she was practicing guitar backstage one day and a man that she she said she assumed it was one of the grips because he looked like a grip came up to her and uh 
and was giving her a few pointers on playing the guitar and she noticed that the set photographer like kind of rushed up and was taking a bunch of pictures of it and after the the grip walked off the set photographer came up and was like i can print you out some copies of those if you want to keep them and she was like why would i want to keep pictures of that and they were like because eddie vetter was just teaching you how to play guitar <laughs> that's hilarious eddie vetter playing a fictional version of himself on this was hilarious as well they also said uh Kasten said that he had sent eddie vetter a paragraph ahead of time to to learn and then on the day he showed up he gave him a three-page speech and eddie vetter was like so mad at him i i want to know so bad what the punchline is to that like build up when he's talking about like how all these musical people relate to the bible and then they like cut away yeah, and you, yeah. you don't get to hear what the end of it is but it's amazing <laughs> the, the like build up to the joke is amazing if elvis and buddy holly are the cain and abel of rock and roll and bruce springsteen is zachariah iggy pop is methuselah and of course neil young is the wise prophet ezekiel then what does that make dewey cox so Sounds like it was a really good time filming. Yeah. The uh, the not good times started to, uh, oh, as God. the film was released. So uh, the uh, the film was slated to come out December 21st, 2007. But in the months leading up to the release, there was a huge issue with the publicity because a writer's strike was going on. One of, yep. one of the biggest writer's strikes of modern filmmaking. You know, so many bad movies we can point to because of the writer's strike, I think. Just, I don't think people fully realize how big of an like deal that writer struck. It's like I was in high school, like or like young in high school when that happened, and that being a big deal, like to just a viewer mm -hmm. of like, oh, there's no talk shows, there's no this, there's no that, like nothing's being made. Uh, and then now you look back on it, you're saying like all these movies that kind of just like were rushed into production. Yeah, somebody somebody recently. I was talking to they were like yeah why was quantum of solace so bad and i was like well it was made during the writer's strike and they were like oh i didn't remember yeah. the context of that camera someone did a deep dive at one point of like just the movie vert like the movies of that were affected by it at one point like the writers like this we were having to do like we we're having to basically rush to get a script done but yeah like you mentioned so talk shows and late night shows were all on hiatus which is how in 2007 which is how you got the word out about your film yeah um especially a comedy film like the late night tour was was how you got a wow. comedy film uh how you drummed up publicity for that so uh so in a bid to find any other way to publicize the film sony arranged for a seven city concert tour with riley hitting the road in character as dewey for uh dewey cox and the hard walkers present cox across america hitting Cleveland, <laughs> Chicago, Austin, Nashville, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York. Now this makes a little bit more sense of why they did it because it's Yeah, like, actually, yeah. yeah. I honestly didn't know the context of it at all. I yeah, just they thought were just trying to get it out there any way possible. Um, and man, I think it just, it, it shows you how much effort Riley put into this movie. He did like six months of music prep for this thing, shot the movie, did a seven-city concert tour, tour. Like, yeah this was this was his baby also uh to hit any outlet possible riley performed in character uh for monday night football changing the lyrics <laughs> of walk hard to block hard i've tried finding a, uh, a video of this and i can't hard. find it anywhere i'm so sad that's hilarious <laughs> ultimately however the press push just didn't work and despite riley being nominated for a golden globe for best actor in a musical or comedy for this film the uh, movie failed to garner much audience whatsoever. It grossed just $20 million on a $35 million budget. Um, and it didn't fare much better in the press. A lot of critics deemed it the end of Apatow's hot streak. 
a lot of critics were coming out and saying like Apatow blew it. This is we thought this guy was on his way up, and this is a dud. It looks like I might have found the block hard, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, cause yeah, he's. I mean, it's a hot streak for I me. Mean, Apatow uh, to date ourselves here, like for me in high school, like Apatow was kind of it was he was the king of comedy at that point. Mm-hmm. Like it's the forty year old virgin, it's the knocked up, it's it's um uh, super bad because that's like sophomore year high school for me. Um, and so walk hard was kind of like, Ooh, cool. We're all, it's all these people together doing this like bio, like music movie. And it just kind of falls by the wayside. Uh, our boy, Roger Ebert though, gave it three out of four stars. Uh, he, he noted it's, it's unique place in the pantheon of spoof movies because of Riley's unique performance. He said, uh, instead of sending everything over the top at high energy, like top secret or airplane, they allow Riley to more or less actually play the character. So that against all expectations, some scenes actually approach real sentiment. Riley is required to walk a tightrope. Is he suffering or kidding suffering or kidding suffering about suffering? That we're not sure adds to the appeal of the film. He really had to walk the line on that one. He did. He had to walk it hard. (laughs) He walked it. He walked it hard. That did remind me of the scene where he's uh, he's in rehab and he has the blankets. And they're like, I need more blankets. Shout out to that nurse. Because that that nurse kills it. He yeah. somehow oh, yeah, dude, needs more sure. and less blankets. I'm hot and cold at the same time. This is a very dark period. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. This guy remembers like, like, that was early Dewey. This is middle Dewey. <laughs> but in the aftermath, Kasdan and Apatow both think the failure was a combination of the lack of a real press tour. And the fact that full-on satires just weren't in vogue when the film came out, yeah. uh, we could yeah. we could fill a whole episode about how the uh, blank movie industry killed satire films. Oh yeah, in the, yeah, in the late, yeah, it really the late two thousands. Without being able to go on interviews about the film, Caston's not even sure that the public realized like what they were going for with this movie. You know, they didn't have a chance to come out and say like this. This is supposed to be making fun of Walk the Line. You know. Yeah. Fisher says, I remember saying to my agent, I don't understand. I don't know how to make a better movie than that. I don't know how to give a better performance. I don't know how to be in a film with better people. If people don't like this movie, I don't know how to do better than this. She didn't really do a ton of feature work after this. She finished The Office out. Yep. So, like, maybe she was like, Walk Hard's the best I got. If you guys don't like it, <laughs> screw you. I'm out. Like, it's kind of how it feels a little bit. Uh, Riley says, when Walkhard came out, I felt personally responsible for the money they didn't make back, and I was devastated when that happened. And also, also devastated because when I saw the amount of heart and energy and hopes that people had in that movie, it took me a couple of years to dig out of the sadness of that. Yeah, I think when you put your so much of yourself into a role like that, it's impossible not to just feel like soul-crushed. Apatow says, uh, Apatow says he got a, the call that, that the movie hadn't done well opening weekend. He was on vacation. Um in hawaii with his family everyone after putting like two years into this movie it sounds like everyone went on vacation for like premiere weekend and um he said for the longest time that was his family's like reference to like anytime apatow got bad news or anytime he got sad his family would be like "Uh oh this this is going to be worse than uh than when he found out about walk hard that was like the yeah the watermark for apatow's depression at that point that's that's um but fast forward to 14 years later and the film has become a cult classic uh, it's especially seen a resurgence in press and pop culture over the last few years as the, the genre it was parroting has come back into popularity with the release of films like Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocket Man, and even to an extent A Star is Born. Um, it's become impossible to not compare any 
music biopic back to walk hard um and especially to wonder how someone could write some of these movies with a straight face after seeing it sent up in walk hard yeah i mean i'm, I'm thinking of like the drug scenes in bohemian rhapsody mm. like things like that and, and also even just the like again it's the the uh queen at the beginning of bohemian rhapsody before they go on stage the big performance mm. and then bohemian rhapsody ends with them going on stage at live aid because mm-hmm. it starts that way it's it's the the bookend ending of the biopic yeah is is very big they make fun of in this movie that continued on with uh bohemian rhapsody i, I, don't, I don't think it does it in uh rocket man though and it doesn't do it in rocket yeah man. i mean there's still the like estranged relationship with his parents that makes his life all of yeah. his music comes from that but um uh, there's an interview with Kazan after Bohemian Rhapsody came out, and one scene he he pointed to in particular that reminded him of Walkhard is uh, when they 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 like go into the recording studio and they're like, yeah, we need to write more songs that are hip, and then they just immediately write another one bites the dust like within like 20 seconds yeah. of, of saying that they want to like be cool. <laughs> one particular group that has helped raise this film to cult status, it seems, are actual musicians. Uh, yeah. the cast has noted that over the years they've been surprised at how many rock stars have approached them to tell them they love walk hard uh including billy <laughs> joe armstrong who worked on a film with uh jenna fisher's husband and and apparently told her husband like every day like when's your wife coming to set i'm obsessed with walk hard <laughs> uh bonnie Raitt and robert plant have both uh approached Caston about how much they love the film and uh and Caston said he heard a rumor for years that the movie was always playing in the tour bus for the eagles that's hilarious and uh and john c Riley said one day he was at a uh, he was at a lakers game and glenn fry came up to him and said dewey cox man that movie was my life <laughs> which is funny because we talked about glenn fry last week as the uh, inspiration for for russell on almost famous i think musicians probably do find humor in this because they're like they're like, man, if anyone ever made a movie about this crazy shit. And then they're like, oh, man, this actually nailed it right <laughs> on the head. And they were trying to make fun of us the whole time. This and like this is Spinal Tap are the two that come to mind of like, I know that musicians like, yeah, I've gotten lost on the way of the stage before, mm. which is what happens in Spinal Tap. Um, it's 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 yeah, I think it's probably very relatable. Yeah. You know, it's funny you bring up Spinal Tap. That's something that Apatow said kind of helped him once he got over the initial shock of the movie bombing. He, he said that was something that kind of helped him feel good about the movie was he called Casson at some point and was like you know we just kept referencing movies like spinal tap when we were making this and spinal tap wasn't a hit either like when it first came out like but it became a hit he he realized after the fact that all the movies they were referencing were cult movies so in the grand scheme of things what what works about this movie john c Riley on every level john c Riley works on every level the writing works on every level um the cast i I think the weird kind of choices they took jack white uh works um things that you wouldn't normally have thought would work um i really thought that they i don't know this movie just hits constantly hitting and i i i don't remember i honestly did not remember how well everything like was clicking the whole time um until i rewatched this last time and i was like oh my god this movie is like really hits on a lot of points you know, honestly like, that's that's something that that makes the 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 actual dramas the, these dramas feel kind of weird like Caston was saying that you're just hitting like greatest hits moments of their life and that makes it feel a little weird when you're watching a drama but for a comedy it's perfect it's a perfect setup 
to just be able to like yeah. drop yeah. into these these huge comedy set pieces and get back out and you never have to have like a slow moment it's, yeah and, and, and it's a tight film i'll say that it's, it's like a 90 minute film i think is what it, it's pretty it's a short it's a short short film it doesn't feel as short as it is i didn't feel like it did i felt like it felt like a longer movie than what it really was but it is a lot of it's a lot condensed into one thing it's like a fifth of a snyder cut <laughs> i don't know um i'd rather watch this five uh, times you want a five part dewey cox oh man i you would know, love that you know that's not that. a terrible idea that's not i mean it, it's it i don't know if we could, i don't know if you could sustain that humor for that long because this is that's that's the thing i think it was difficult in this movie is that is the humor you have to sustain but a five-hour walk hard dewey cox story if you came to John C. Riley and you were like, I want to make a five-part Dewey Cox reboot and I want you to reprise your role, he would be like, no. <laughs> you know how much of my life I poured into that movie? Yeah, he, he, I think he would like. He would be like, what's the highest ledge I can jump off of in the next five minutes? <laughs> John C. Riley has to think about his whole life before he plays Dewey Cox. Yeah, He's just like, you, you'd, dude. You'd have... You'd have to do it more. I mean, maybe not, but you'd have to do it more like uh, actually cast a little bit younger. Like it would be literally just like him, maybe telling the story of all of his like life, life to someone. Like oh yeah, may, like like maybe, an HBO music documentary where he's sitting there getting interviewed. And they're yeah, it's True Detective season three is what it is. He's merged all the <laughs> he can't remember that he's Dewey Cox the whole time. <laughs> He's like, and then he just went on this crazy thing, and the whole time the lady's just like trying to get him to admit that he's Dewey Cox, and it's still Jane Lynch. Oh man, I would love that. Uh, I concur with, with with what Hunter was saying. I think the performances. I think I think Riley. I, I mean, everything kind of relies on Riley. I think the music, as we've talked about, the music has to be good. I have I have some issues with some songs, which we'll probably get into with the day anything not work. Um, but a lot of the the songs that really stick with the era really do just like work incredibly mm. well um it's kind of amazing well let's 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 get into what didn't work there's some there are some comedic bits in this movie that would not would not be made today and i did not remember them in this movie at all and then i when i rewatched it i was like oh my god this is this is a lot i was like i, I can't believe none of this has come up is honestly what i thought i was like i can't believe none of this has come up at all at at all since like i honestly like i don't know like uh, if you were thinking like what would they cut for a tv edit of of walk hard the dewey cox show like or the dewey cox story i honestly like there are whole scenes that have to be cut like entire scenes like the, the one that, that that pops to me and and it's it's this is just the issue of just the way comedy as as you're kind of saying hunter how it kind of evolves and how some things become dated uh and made politically incorrect the scene that's like i think was even maybe difficult to watch at that point because it's, it's it's mentioned in a few uh um reviews is the john c right at the, at the at the black club uh, when he takes over for craig robinson when craig robinson's yeah. like hurt like, yeah yeah i get what it, it's 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 just kind of like it, it's the song like because i remember i think it was maybe peter travers in her, like song or, or a review i think some of them say like yeah this song doesn't work you've got you've got to love your negro man you gotta love your negro man and it's i yes. get what it's doing i get what it's yeah doing. i think they're it's i think they're idea, i think uh, what uh, they're trying to say is absolutely right i yeah i, I agree i agree and we, we we talked about this with um i think we brought it up with that thing you do but just this idea that that rock and roll was yeah. built off of a lot of white people taking advantage of 
music that was created yes. by African Americans. I just think there's better ways to say that. <laughs> yeah, there's better I, ways to say that than this song. I think they say like, it. Be- I think they honestly say they say it better with the scene when Young Dewey like like learns to play the blues off these old men and he's just like yes magically yeah. yes. better than them somehow it's like that's that's how those movies are yeah. like oh this little white kid just like picked up this art that these men have been perfecting their entire life i've never heard no music like that before it's so sad that's why it's called the blues boy i think i like to play me some blues ain't no six-year-old boy understand the true meaning of the blues i reckon i might you play the guitar? Never have before, but I'm a real fast learner. Well, go ahead. You put your finger right up there. Place your hands down. That's it. That's the G chord. Now hit the strings with your other hand. That's it. There you go. some some film facts uh, in reference to maybe why they didn't look back and decide to cut the Craig Robinson scene um, Craig Robinson's character Bobby Shad is named after Judd Apatow's grandfather who was the uh, record producer uh, okay. Bobby Shad and the Bad Men um, Dewey's, uh, Dewey's lost sense of smell is a reference to Stevie Wonder who lost his sense of smell after a car accident there's a lot of things to unpack in that sentence. He's, he's blind There's, and he cannot. Let's smell. think about that. And and he's he smell blind. And he was driving a car. No, he was not. He was riding. <laughs> he was riding. Okay, thank God. I was about to say that's that's a lot. Caston realized when researching for the script that uh, Johnny Cash, Ray Charles, and Elvis Presley had all had brothers die at young ages. Yeah, I, I knew Elvis did. So that that yeah. helped wow. him uh, build the script out. Um, another reference he made that a lot of people not, might not realize is that jonah hill's appearance in the film is a reference not to walk the line but to johnny cash's autobiography in which he says that he often spoke with the ghost of his brother throughout his life and he liked to envision his brother as being two years older than him even as he grew up wow so he always talked to a different version of his brother's ghost mm-hmm. that's some weird stuff right there <laughs> crazy johnny cash is a weirdo honestly the jonah hill bit was hilarious you lost your sense of smell i got no legs dude <laughs> I would love to know how much of this movie was improv versus actually written. It's, yeah. Because a lot of it did seem like improv. Yeah, and that's, and that's really I think, did. where Riley was so important, was he was someone that could improv but also be a dramatic actor yeah. at the same time. Uh, there's Honestly, yeah. there's so much to unpack in this movie of like real-life references that Kasdan made. And another yeah. one specifically is when Dewey auditions with That's Amore at Sun Records. Apparently, according mm-hmm. to legend, Elvis auditioned with like a crooner-type song. And they made him, yes. they said, you know, do you have anything else you could play for us? With Elvis, what happened was he came in, this is the mom thing, Elvis, to, for, my, for the, me being the Elvis historian of this podcast. Uh, yes. He came, he came in because he wanted to sing a song for his mother for like her birthday or something. And it was a crooner song. And the, the lady at the counter liked his, liked his, uh, 
his sound, but Sam Phillips like, why do I need a crooner? And then I think brought him in later and like tried to work with them and probably saying stuff like that. But that's kind of the reference to the mom. Like, oh, my mom likes that some more, eh? It's because Elvis, that's why he went in the record something was for his mom. Oh, um, so. wow. Brandon, you want to you wanna hit the fact about the guy in the uh, the convenience store? Yeah. The, the guy in the convenience store, his name is David Honeyboy Edwards. And David Honeyboy Edwards is one of the early blues musicians back in the day. He originally played for blues aficionados out there. Played with, like, uh, Robert Johnson, Charlie Patton, uh Johnny, Shine, uh, Johnny Shines, actually from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, or uh, that's where he passed away in. Um, yeah, uh, Edwards was one of like, the big ones that they like actually went out and found. Alan Lomax back in the day in the 40s went out to like record blues musicians out in the Mississippi Delta um, for the Library of Congress, and they recorded a lot of Edwards's music. So he was kind of for he wow. lived until the t- 2011. So he was kind of one of like the last big like names that like had this attachment to that early like Delta Blues sound. So it's very it's a very big it's a very interesting re- or it's a big reference that he's throwing him in there in mm. that scene. Um. So other than King of Staten Island, which was as we know sabotaged by COVID, and um, and Juliet <laughs> Naked, which was a limited Still release. That on, movie. Uh, only one other Judd Apatow produced theatrical release has ever performed worse. Then walk hard. Do you know what that is? Oh man, that's a good question. Judd Apatow produced. Yep. It's of all of his films, it's the most similar to Walk Hard. Hold on, let me. Can I? I I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna look at his filmography. This is a little bit cheating, but I just want to see. The one that popped up was Get Him to the Greek. No, but I don't you would have think it. he would have learned it. To the Greek did fairly um, well. Oh, pop star, never stop, never stopping. Pop star, never stop, never stopping. Another music parody another highly underrated film but uh wow nine million dollars on a 25 million dollar budget i don't think i ever saw that movie that's also very similar hunter you would like it's a it's a mockumentary but it's it's you know it's it's very much in the same vein as as uh as uh spinal tap for sure walk hard walk Meets Spinal just, Tap meets Hot Rod. I mean, it, it begs the question is <laughs> oh, like, I love that. Will parody <laughs> movies great. ever make a comeback from the like blank movie era? Here's a really, really depressing fact for you. So this this movie made twenty million. Oh no. Pop star never stop never stopping made nine million. Meet the Spartans made eighty million dollars at the box office. Oh god. Are you kidding me? Nope. <laughs> I hate those movies. <laughs> I hate that I've seen that movie. I hate that I've seen that movie. Like it bothers me. See, I saw epic movie in theaters. I have to say, there was one I saw that I was like, it felt like it was like an hour long movie. I was like, wait, superhero movie. I know film? was super short. I never saw that one. Drake Bell. Was it movie forty three? What movie forty three? I I won't say that. Never mind. Uh... <laughs> That's gonna be a hot take there. <laughs> I have not seen movie 43 since it came out. I remember it being a little bit better than anyone's everyone said it was. That's all I will say. Like, okay. Hot, <laughs> yeah. Hottest of takes right there. Well, like, That's spicy. Like it came, it came out there, like it's because it's an anthology film. Like it's some of them are just like God awful, but there's a few that I remember like I laughed. <laughs> all right. Any story questions? Did Dewey ever have a good album or was it just songs? You know that's a good. He's got mm. in his Malibu house. He's got some of his albums up on the wall. Um, what what decade? What decade of like what Dewey style do you most want to hear a full album of? 
this might dip too much too far into our don't don't give away your your pick for for best song yet though i feel like that the early the early early years where it was like take my hand that stuff the more like lighter boppier kind of mm-hmm. uh of that time i thought yeah. i would have loved to hear more of that i i agree i think that the hard part is i'm trying to think like in terms of history of music that's the elvis stuff and it's a lot of singles mm-hmm. a lot of singles not a lot of albums elvis gets in the albums later but when he's starting off in, in memphis at sun it's just all it's just all singles and then like he does uh i think just like elvis presley is his first big album and that's a huge hit um yeah i think that would probably that would be his most influential album you know is the, is the, is the, you know in the in the world of walk hard after like everyone rediscovers him because he gets sampled in that rap song you know there's some edgy teen in yeah. high school that's like well i love his black sheep album i think it's really underrated oh uh, most definitely <laughs> yeah it's yeah there, there 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 is a stoner dude who like really loves black sheep like uh or dropping acid um turns out that kid is actually one of the dewey sons <laughs> he finds i love that one where he's just like are you sure you're my son and he just like smiles and nods <laughs> it's great. and throws them all back <laughs> uh, the, the one thing and maybe we'll get in this late oh, with the song i don't want to jump too far ahead but like i do find it funny that like they do use one cover in this in this mm-hmm. movie but i think it's oh, a star man yeah, i think it's a great yeah. pointer to that era when like a lot of those guys were kind of selling yeah. out do you okay this is now that's the internal logic of the movie this is my like m- like marketing aftermath of the movie do you think this would have been a bigger hit if it was just a concept album and not a movie i don't in the moment. especially not in 2007 i mean i think you know okay. if, it, if this came out on like you know now you could get it on spotify or apple music or something like if this had come out during covid yeah i think and, and everybody was like yeah you know john c Riley made this fake album like See, yeah but it was it was a little tougher. Like you had to, you know, that in two thousand seven you had to buy something, and like radio was was not like yeah. it was it was kind of tough to get music. Like MP threes had killed MTV and that sort of thing. But then it was like you only had iTunes to go through if you weren't doing you know illegal things. I used to buy my songs through Walmart.com. Think about that for a second. That's terrifying. I bought songs through Walmart.com because iTunes like was like it's before iTunes was really a thing. And and Walmart prices were a tad bit, or I think I well, well I think price it was the first thing I bought stuff through. There used like, to be this <laughs> service. I completely forgot I was uh, it even existed until just now, and I can't remember the name of it. But you signed up for it, and it was free, and you got to pick five songs every month, and you could listen to those five songs, and that was it. You couldn't listen to any more. What kind of weird <laughs> South Carolina backwoods thing is this? You had to like I just That's remember terrible. I remember like sitting down every month and like listing out like what songs I was into and like what I wanted my five for that month. That's terrifying. How much was it? It was free, but you 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 got you only got five songs. Oh uh, well, thank God. Man, I just like the 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 amount of access that we have to things now that we did not have when we were like that age. It's just it's baffling. I to remember me. the just day like, I signed up for Spotify, my mind was blown. I was just like, I don't yeah. even know what to listen to. I have Same. every song at my fingertips. Yeah. But yes, okay, so so no on would it be a bigger hit, but I mean, would you want and this might be a final question, but would you want John C. Ride to do like a concept album nowadays as Dewey Cox? Like, yeah, he I do think, a movie. He does an I album. think the, yes. the the album is is such an incredible because when you when you watch this movie and then you go back and listen to the album, you're like, Oh my god, there was so much good stuff that just didn't even make it yeah, into the I, movie. Or yeah. like barely you know, they put like half of a verse in <laughs> 
I can't. I and this this this. I know you guys love it, but I honestly feel like the album's better than the film for me. I prefer the album over the film. So I I I think of it as a package as a package okay, deal. Okay, okay. I see where I see. I where also think from. of it as a package deal. I I understand what you're saying, but I kind of disagree. No, it's but, fine. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's like I'm gonna listen to this album more and more. I'm not gonna watch the movie as much. Is kind of my 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 thing. You know, the only any I think maybe I would love to know what discussions were had but there was a documentary now like two episodes of the first season of documentary now where they did the blue jean committee blue part jean one and two committee. and it was making fun of it was making fun of hbo document like music docs uh-huh. and they made and put out like an actual album of blue jean committee songs as like part of the promotional mm-hmm. material and i honestly wonder how much of those decisions and just dis- like discussions were made by things related to this movie yeah. like because mm-hmm. it's it it's pretty close and like the style of humor is pretty similar, mm-hmm. but yeah, okay. honestly, like the whole, like, I feel like they put more work, honestly, into probably putting those songs out than they did most like the episodes. The episodes were good, but they were like, it's a lot of work for something that may not pay off that much. Hunter, you have any, you have any story questions? I, I honestly would have loved to known what happened to Edith. I, I would have <laughs> loved like those children, yeah, those children fair. never get you, revisited you like her, again. Her, her, and her, her like young boyfriend who's at the final performance. But like we never really get the those kid the kids come up later on, but like those kids don't at all. Like that was never a thing. And um Yeah, you know, I noticed for the first time watching it this time, Dewdrop says he's got like twenty siblings and then he says like plus half siblings. So mm-hmm. they they're saying that he had twenty kids with Edith. Like <laughs> yeah. they, I mean there's a lot of kids when Edith is li- is leaving him, but Yeah, I that and I, I would have loved to have I feel like Margot Martindale got just so horribly underutilized <laughs> in this movie, kind of like criminally underutilized. This was this before was a little bit there. before yeah. the Margot Martindale uh, like yeah. recognition yeah, really paid off. Someone's like, "Oh yeah, they're that lady who played Dewey Cox's mom." Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, like wow, to think that's how people knew her at that point was kind of wild. But um, I would love to have known how the death of Elvis and all these other people affected Dewey Cox, or if he just didn't give a shit. Cause like they like, they never they never bring up all these people dying and Dewey's unfazed like nothing has changed his like way of life. But here's here's my question: What did the uh, what did the rest of the band do while Dewey was having his yeah. his uh, solo phase? Yeah, I don't know. That's uh, a good question. I mean, I feel like they were all like session session musicians for some person, like for some studio probably. Mm. Like they're just like we're gonna do like we're gonna call it in and do drums for like this guy or this person or I'm a, Chris Parnell's doing like bass or whatever for the for like Tim Meadows was just doing what he had to do yeah. to keep the drug money flowing yeah he yeah once paid for drugs all right well let's dive into the real attraction oh, today the Paul Williams Music Award for best song of the film I know what you my, guys mine to is listen to the soundtrack a few times this week and get ready for it twice okay. all the way through. I also right here I, I will say I want to talk about the comparison pieces of like what it's trying to be to I want to like because that's something we haven't fully talked about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I, I love uh, what they do with the soundtrack so the let's duet this is not my favorite but what I noticed this time when watching it and listening to it what I love they do is they switch roles it's like Darlene is doing the Johnny Cash like low voice that they would mm-hmm. do like on like Jackson or whatever uh and uh and john c riley dewey is doing the high voice that june carter would do they switch it mm-hmm. and I, that's because i was like are they doing june and june and johnny or, or june cash and johnny cash and i was like 
they are they've just switched the dynamic of the song and she's the like deep voice and he's the like i'm hitting the high notes and it's it's very interesting to see them like if that was the plan like if that was the purpose like hey we're gonna reverse that dynamic of those two you know that, that's another reference that i i love in that sequence um because there's a there's a really weird part in that movie and in, in walk the line when they're in that like She's like, oh, we've got this crazy chemistry, but I'm Christian and you're married. And they have this weird like back and forth uh-huh. in Walk the Line. And I think they sum that up perfectly in that, that scene during the Let's Duet sequence when she like kisses him and then like slaps, slaps him. him. Yeah. And then he's like, let's let's just be good friends. And then he tries to kiss her again. She's like, I can't. We're friends. <laughs> um, list of like comparisons. Take My Hand is kind of this Bully, Bully, Buddy Holly, uh, mm-hmm. early Buddy Holly. A life without you is kind of is Roy Orbison. Yeah, for sure. To, to a T, it's actually insane. That was one of the uh, that was one of the first songs that was written. Uh, okay. When they brought Mike Viola in, he wrote that one. Uh, uh, Darling, I think was kind of like it, it reminds me. I don't have a specific artist, but it reminds me of that era very well. I hate you, Big Daddy. That's his Elvis song. That's his Elvis song. Yeah, that was so that was so good though. Old daddy. It's Big so good. Big Daddy. Going around. Um, guilty as charged. Uh, not really sure. Guilty as charged. Um, I found. I think it was that. It was that outlaw country era. Okay. And they and they told um, the guy who wrote that one. They told him just picture one of those outlaw country guys like drunk in a hotel room. Okay. Writing. Guilty that's as what, charged. That's what you're gonna come away with. That makes sense. Uh, dear Mr. President, I know it, it, it's in the Bob Dylan era. I don't think it's mm-hmm. Bob Dylan though. I think it's like no, because, Joan Baez, like these type protest singers, because yeah. it's too it's too light. It's too light for Bob Dylan. Yeah, and then you get Bob Dylan with with Royal w- Jelly. Royal Jelly, that that's Bob Dylan. That's it's yeah. but it's so well done and it yeah. makes no sense. But John C. So Riley's Bob Dylan is is great. Is insane. Yeah. As someone said in the interview, like he needed to be the next chapter, and I'm not there. Which came out the mm. same exact <laughs> year as this, by the way. So it's really weird seeing him do the black and white "Don't Look Back" parody. And walk hard when, mm-hmm. like, that's what Kate Blanchett does, and I'm not there. Uh, Starman, as as we know, is David Bowie. Black Sheep is kind of is Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys. Feels a little bit like like uh, Sergeant Pepper as well, but that's because they were kind of competing back and forth. Um, have you heard the news? Dewey Cox died. I don't. <laughs> it reminds me of like it's trying to be like a depressing American Pie. Like in a way, like the day the music died type thing. I was gonna say, mm-hmm. I, I just can't get over how shrill his voice gets in that song. <laughs> like, all, like all of a sudden, he's just like, "Hey, have you heard the news? Dewey Cox died." You're like, yeah. "What the hell's going on here?" It's just so well done. I don't know. Uh, and, and then, and then, beautiful ride is kind of the closer. So that's the list. Um, just to get to the point of where we picked this song. Sorry, I just wanted to, wanted to throw those comparisons out. Uh, I'm glad you did because honestly I didn't know any of those. So I, I figured, but I didn't like know the actual specific ones. Because that was that again. That's about the idea of like not being on the joke, and now I am. It's like early on, it's like I just see this, hear these like songs, but now when you know like oh, it's like this is Roy Orbison, this is these people. It very much hits home. Like oh, they're really nailing these these eras of music. Um, but Hunter, Hunter, what is what is your song? You know, I was gonna say let's do it because I feel like it's so well written. It's like so tightly written, and everything is perfectly placed in that song. But I don't know, man. Like, uh, beautiful ride is 
it's catchy as hell. It really is. It is. It's it sticks with you. It really does. I can remember that song. I remembered that song all the way through from the first time I watched this movie. Yeah. All of these songs that they do for this movie like have for like a length of the song you're like this could be a real song yeah. and then mm-hmm. they always like hit this punchline that you're like oh this is a joke and i love the beautiful ride with the like traveling not just for business yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> beautiful ride was the only one i bought off of walmart.com uh when this came out uh so oh, there's that yes. uh so so yours is beautiful ride hunter i think so yeah i think it is and it was not going I... to be at all it's about the good walk and the hard walk the young girls who made cry it's about make a little music every day till you die it's a beautiful ride a beautiful ride i'm gonna go a little different i'm gonna say a life without you is no life at all because Mm. i love roy orbison and i really think this is like a, a Roy Orbison song that just got lost in a different universe. It really feels that way. Yeah. Uh, and and Riley nails it. He nails the like. He does. Because Roy Orbison's got such a unique voice, and Riley hits he, it. He really does. So that 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 I I agree that Beautiful Rye is kind of like I, I think is a really good song and feels like the most like because it's of its own if that makes sense. But I think in terms of, like mm-hmm. copying of other stuff, I really think that one really captures it incredibly well yeah and honestly like john c Riley hit some notes in that song you're like yeah, yeah. holy yeah, shit yeah. <laughs> yeah. like that's incredible make mistakes and that is true at least i learn each time i do yeah some of this darling you must believe i could never leave you My pick, I'm gonna go with a with a dark horse pick. Uh I love Royal Jelly. I I, I, I knew <laughs> I knew you were gonna pick a Dylan one. I knew you were gonna pick that era. And I love that like I said, Riley just hit just nails the Dylan voice. Yeah. Like it doesn't even sound like any it doesn't sound like the same guy singing those. Mm-hmm. But I love that it is so Dylan with the like um it's like Dylan had the song I Want You that's just him like listing off yeah. just nonsense. Yeah. And this is that, but but I really love that the chorus, the like punchline of this song is that there's all this like heady, trippy nonsense, and then it's just a like a crude sex joke is like the punchline. <laughs> where the, the royal song. jelly gets made. Let me, let me touch you where the royal jelly is made. <laughs> it's just <laughs> so dumb, but it's amazing, and just I think it that that song sums up like this this movie and this soundtrack to me is just like so much commitment to making this sound yeah. exactly like bob dylan and then just like capping it off with a really crude joke so that brings us to the beatrice straight award for the actor with limited scene i, want to throw, oh. we, we, I forgot to add this because we did on the last few matt damon cameo award the matt damon cameo award yes that's true jack and white my pick, my in my pick opinion is, is, my jack, pick white. is jack white too. my pick is paul rudd and jack black playing yeah, off of each other that's a close second <laughs> too is paul and john I can't pick one I, or the one other. Of my favorite lines. One of my favorite lines. I think uh, uh, Paul Rudd says about to Paul. It's a. Uh, it's a. Uh, I wonder if your songs will still be shit when you're sixty. When I'm sixty four. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got that one line to uh, Ringo. Where he's like, "I'll shut it. You're lucky we let you own the album at all." 
<laughs> oh yeah, he goes, he goes like, I got a song about octopuses, Goldens. I've got a song about an octopus. octopus. <laughs> I'm just more about having oh, fun. <laughs> George, Har- I, I think in the extended cut, George Harris like, I wrote Taxman. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> <laughs> these random things. <laughs> Uh, but I still love Jack. I think uh, they're great because they have a big sequence, but I think Jack White in terms of like, just literally like a minute, I feel like he's in that movie. And I just yeah. still remember the, like him, him just like, I'm gonna tell you, man, like it's, he does a decent Elvis. That's so over the Dude, top. It works. People don't, for, people don't remember that Jack White can act. Cause he survived all the way through cold mountain. No one remembers that, <laughs> but he survives cold mountain. Almost everyone else doesn't, but Jack White lives. And it's like kind of kind of wild. You forget that Jack White had a little bit of an acting career for a bit, right? Yeah, you do. He's, he's, you in, really coffee, do. he's in Jim Jarmusch's Coffee and Cigarettes. Like he's in a bunch of, he's in a couple things in that era. Dang Elvis Presley, you didn't have to rile him up like that. <laughs> what now? No, excuse me. What? I'm just saying we gotta follow that. And well, sometimes you have to go all out when you're the king and you can't help it, you know. Because there's only one man who's a king. God picks him, hand plucks him. One night, God looked down all the millions and millions and millions of people, man, and he decided which one was the best. And it was me. And he plucked me from all those millions and millions and millions of people, man. Yeah? Listen to this right now. There's two things you need to know. Uh-huh. I'm the king. And number two is, look out, man! Look at that coming at you, you see that? It's called karate, man, and only two kinds of people know it. The Chinese and the king. But one of them is me. The uh, Beatrice Trade Award, the actor with limited scenes okay. that kills it. It's uh, can I my I know what I'm gonna say. Yeah. It's Go Tim Meadows, it. dude. It's Tim Meadows all day long. See, I have, I, but see, I have him in supporting actor. I think he's in there. Yeah. I think he's in there too much. Um. Uh. But I, yeah, I agree that I think he. I think he's in that category. Beatrice Trade's interesting because like it's like who's in it like for like six minutes or less. Like who has like kind of three to five scenes in this movie. I kind of think. I wonder if it's the father. Yeah, I I I would go Kristen Wiig. I've already okay, said that's fair. That's fair. My her I'm his twelve. I'm Dewey's twelve year old girlfriend is uh, is one of my favorite lines. And she she was this was like right at the height, like yeah. at the start of her. Um, but but I, I that that is such a thankless role. And in the, <laughs> like anytime you watch these movies, you're like, oh, his wife's not going to support him. And it's so oh, it's so tired. Like I'm so tired of that trope. And and it's so much fun to have her. Like I I love the when they're on the phone. We were talking about the male nudity scene when yeah. he's like hanging up, and she's like, "You're never gonna make it." Like right before. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll back that. I like I like the Kristen wig. It's just yeah. she's she's odd because it's like because she was like one like she's she she's billed pretty high. I think. Um, mm-hmm. And but, I mean, she's out of it. Like after she's the out. First, like, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Can I come, Dewey? Of course you can, Edith. You're my girlfriend. I am? Yes, silly. I pointed at you in the audience. <laughs> Did you hear that? I'm newest 12-year-old girlfriend! <laughs> You're the most talented man I've ever seen in my whole life. And you will never get anything but unconditional love and support from me. For you and your dreams, for the rest of my life. All right, the Annie Potts X Factor Award, the supporting actor or actress who is the most memorable. All right, Hunter, take this one. Uh, it's Tim Meadows. <laughs> since I did yeah. get my Tim Meadows it's moment, it's one hundred percent Tim Meadows. Yeah. It's Tim Meadows yeah. for sure, because like every time I've quoted this movie, like get out that, of here, Dewey. You don't, you don't want, want any want of this. Shit. You don't want any of this shit. <laughs> We're doing pills, Dewey. Uppers and downers. It's the next logical step in your evolution. <laughs> Addiction. <laughs> yeah, then the Viagra. It's Viagra. Gives it, you a boner. Gives you a boner. It's like, I don't want. I don't want to touch any of that. 
Did you not hear me, Dewey? <laughs> it gives you a bonus. And then he just leaves. He's like, I'm tired of these temptations. And he yeah. opens the door. Yeah. And then it's the temptation. I did see somebody note. Yeah. Oh, it's the temptation. I did see somebody note. I think it. Uh, I think it might have been on Letterbox, but I did see somebody note that the one time Dewey turns down a drug offer from Tim Meadows, he dies immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I just think Tim That's Meadows it really does. Uh, and you know, I guess it's all that drum practice he had to put in for this movie, but he kills it. And underrated because Tim Meadows is not really used that much in movies. And like, I think mm-hmm. of him in this, I think of him around the same time, maybe a little bit a few years earlier, him and mean girls as the principal. <laughs> like I, th- yeah. I think he is great and just completely underused in, in like comedy films today. It has always been. Get out of here, Dewey. What are y'all doing in here? We're smoking reefer and you don't want no part of this shit. You're smoking reefers. Yeah, of course we are. Can't you smell it? No, Sam. I can't. Come on, Dewey. Join the party. No, Dewey. You don't want this. Get out of here. You know what? I don't want no hangover. I can't get no hangover. It doesn't give you a hangover. Well, I get addicted to it or something? It's not habit-forming. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. I don't want to overdose on it. You can't OD on it. It's not going to make me want to have sex, is it? It makes sex even better. Sounds kind of expensive. It's the cheapest drug there is. Hmm. You don't want it. I think I kind of want it. (laughs) Okay, but just this once. Come on in. All right, so he gets the X Factor Award, which brings us to the Gene Hackman MVP Award, the person who carries this movie. I think it's pretty clear, but let's just say it to to make sure we're all in agreement. (laughs) Jenna Fisher. <laughs> <laughs> Jenna Fisher is a lot of fun. Uh, 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 John C. Riley. Yes, correct. Yes. Holy shit! This is the John C. Riley show. This is he was born for this. Yeah, he was. And and I get why it was so depressing that this doesn't do well because like he it's probably his first movie he's starring in. Like he's the lead mm-hmm. guy, yeah. and he puts everything into it, and it just like just does not go. He get, gets a Golden Globe nomination though. I, I can't remember if we said that or not. But like he he's so good in it, and it just puts it on his back and and takes it to the finish line. It's depressing that it didn't didn't do well in its day. But they, one of the interviews I read, I think with Caston was he said, you know, when people, especially in this later career, when when John C. Reilly has has all of a sudden become so famous for things like Step Brothers, you forget how well rounded yep. he is. And Caston said when they approached him to do this, he was in the process of starring in true west on broadway oh, wow. and he was switching which role he was yep. playing every night that's insane wow. who was he who was he doing it with uh i'm not sure okay so because so this so so for anyone listening and hunter i don't know if you know this but like so this is a, true west is a sham shepherd play and it's a two two guy play and the whole bit is that the beginning of the movie at the beginning of the play the character start off as one like as th- this brother is one this brother is a different like complete opposites by the end of the play, they begin to evolve and switch, and they switch to like the opposite personalities. So, wow. what some talented actors do, because I've heard this with a lot of other kind of male actors that do this the show, they would switch roles every other night because it's just the two guys. They know all the, the lines. Yeah, yeah, they know all the lines, and it has them like, and they know both the arcs of the characters. They know both the personalities, and they would just do that every few nights, just switching it up, just to like have fun and be different. Who is he playing opposite as on Broadway at this point? Let's see. I'm looking it up. You said True West. Was he said on Broadway is what it was? 
Yeah, that's what they said. Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's wow. that's what oh I thought. Oh my god! Wow. Yeah, that's what I thought. Imagine that. Oh my god. That's was this incredible. right before this, or was it because he's he did? I guess he did it with him. This shows two thousand. I wonder if they did it again later. Yeah, I don't know. Casson Casson brought it up, but maybe he met me. You know, was thinking that that was where he saw Riley and and started to note him. But yeah, but yeah it's he's in, like just one of the most versatile. I mean, a, a character actor who's kind of become a lead man in the past. Yeah. Uh, you know, twenty years, but but yeah, it's it's insane. So yeah, he's our he's our MVP for this movie. I'm gonna make this dream come true. Nobody ever said it's gonna be easy. It's hard. It ain't easy to walk to the top of a mountain. It's a long, hard walk. It's a rocky road. But I plan on walking. Oh, I'm gonna walk. Hard. I will walk hard. Walk hard. All right, so bringing us to our final questions. <laughs> if you, This is where we do our fantasy casting. If you were doing Walk Hard as an actual Oscar bait drama, okay. who do you cast in this film? I want, I want Dewey. I want Darlene. And let's do, let's do Edith. Who'd you have prepared? If you had anybody prepared, let me know. Okay, I have people prepared. Um, okay. Edith, okay. I have, I have E. Okay, I'll tell you all the ones I have because I have more okay. characters than that. I have Dewey, I have a Edith, Darlene, Pa, Ma, and Sam. So Tim okay. Meadows' character. Wow, let's hear it. So I'm gonna go from the top. This one's not as much because I just changed this real quick. Because and so for Edith, I have Amy Adams. <laughs> I also had her down for Darlene, but you could switch it if you like. I went with someone a little bit younger. No, no offense, Amy Adams here for the Darlene character. You, uh, you want Amy Adams to play twelve? I'm just kidding. <laughs> never mind never mind uh well i, I had anna de armos down for darlene maybe you switch it and and she plays edith and amy adams plays darlene i don't know okay 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 i like either of those uh ma and pa this is the oscar bait right here yeah for pa gary oldman <laughs> oh man yeah the wrong kid died i could see gary Oldman being like wrong kid died i could totally see it uh, for Ma, for Ma, Pa's wife, Glenn Close, Gary Oldman and Glenn Close. <laughs> just play, just Glenn Close playing the exact same character, character from Hillbilly from, from Hillbilly that's, that's what I'm yeah, thinking. For sure. Exactly. Uh, I just then being like, yeah, that's that's to me is that Sam, Lakeith Stanfield, as the drummer. Oh yeah, and Sam the drummer. <laughs> I could see him because like it's it's like Bokeem Woodbine does it in Ray and like when you watch the Ray scene where he's just like he's he's like you don't want none of this Ray like he's very much the same thing as Sam and for some mm -hmm. reason like Lakeith has a little bit of Bokeem Woodbine vibes occasionally with me mm -hmm. in certain movies kind of kind of soft spoken low energy yeah. sometimes but can be can intense as hell can be yeah. intense as hell yeah and I think Lakeith could be great at that as Sam all right Dewey Cox. And feel free to hop in on any of these that I've said and say they're terrible. Um, I have three people down for Dewey Cox, two of which have done musical things before, musical okay. sh movies of this nature. Uh, Paul Dano. Okay, yeah. Because uh, Love and Mercy. Uh, Bradley Cooper. <laughs> yeah. 
that was my pick actually okay was Bradley Bradley Cooper, okay so. yeah. i think cooper i think he could be good and the, the really outlandish one that i'm like this is oscar bait as hell is what i'm going for eddie redmayne <laughs> that was my other pick you still have my picks <laughs> oh my god because when i see when i think oscar bait and I'm uh, sorry, I think Eddie Redmayne. I think Eddie Redmayne. I'm sorry, I said Eddie. I think that period of like where he's in like Les Mis and Theory of Everything and uh, 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 the Danish, Danish Girl. Girl. Like I see him just he's that guy who's in these just like Oscar Beatty movies. Yeah. I think now I now I feel comfortable saying that Sasha Baron Cohen would be great in this movie. I I thought but, about him too. I thought about yeah. him too. Yeah. I think he would be. He, he would be interesting because he can't sing and he is a great um, mm-hmm. comedic performer and a comedic mind. I, I you know, I think I if like you had to really do this, if you had to do this again now, yeah, he's not. He'd probably be one of my first stops for sure. You know, I just but, I just literally this moment, like tapped into the memory that Tom Hiddleston made a Hank Williams movie completely. Yeah, forgot. I saw oh, the yeah, light. I forgot. I, about haven't, that. I haven't seen it. You know who else is in that movie, too? She's she actually wouldn't be a bad Darlene. Elizabeth Olsen. Uh, Elizabeth Olsen. Elizabeth yeah. Olsen. Wow. Yeah, she wouldn't be a bad Darlene. I think right. the I like good those, Darlene like would be Jennifer tricks. Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence. I think. I think that. I think that's the natural pro, like progression of like if you're not getting Reese Witherspoon, who's the next younger like Southern Jennifer Lawrence for Jennifer sure. Jennifer Lawrence. I can't because I can just What's see him. I can see her just slapping Bradley Cooper across the I face could, backstage. I can see that. Too. Yeah. Oh God, it's Bradley Cooper and Jennifer mm-hmm. Lawrence directed by David O. Russell. Is that what we're doing yeah. here? Is that- yeah. <laughs> Remaking Walk Hard. Well, then that means Paul has got to be Robert De Niro. Like that's just has to, <laughs> yeah. Has to be. yeah. And Jackie Weaver. Jackie Weaver's his his mom. His I mom. mean, God, yeah, it's I just think... it's just the it's just the Silver Linings Playbook cast. Sam is Chris. Are you Tucker. bringing in Chris Tucker? <laughs> Dude, actually, this will work. This actually works really well. Shea Wiggum. Shea Wiggum. Shea Wiggum is the manager. He's, he. I was like, he's either the ad or he's in the band. He might. He, he Bert, might. Yeah. He, he plays Bert. Yeah. yeah. I feel like, I mean, you For could, sure. I mean, I didn't think this would happen. Just take David O. Russell's like cast of actors and just like throw them in here. Like, yeah. Christian then B- there's Amy Adams still yeah. there. Yeah. Just put Christian Bale as his dead brother that comes to him. <laughs> in the, in the <laughs> Christian Bale just like loses 50 pounds to play a ghost. <laughs> <It's hilarious. laughs> Christian Bale seemed out and, out and about missing his legs. What role is he preparing for? <laughs> I would so, watch that movie, though. 100% take, would watch take, that movie. Take all those names and just put it in a blender and you'll get a cast, guys. Um. All right. To wrap it out, uh, does this movie fit with any other genres other than the fictional musician genre? Well, par- parody, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, I mean, musical. We want to go mm-hmm. there. Well, I think uh, it fits into like the cradle to the grave biopic. Like, even true. though it's not yeah. a real person, it yeah. pretty obviously hits all the tropes of that yeah. genre. No, I agree completely. So, how does it fit in specifically with our genre this month with uh, our fictional bands or fictional musicians? If I mean, it fits nicely because I think I think that, again, as we talked about earlier, the songs really have to land. Uh, for a movie like this to work and like even though i said before i still kind of lose i don't love this movie i think the songs and the attention to detail in this film really 
carry this movie through to where I fully understand why there is a a cult around it and the humor of it, of course, too. Um, but I think I think the songs it, it, it's really hard. Again, it's, like we talked before, before, it's really hard to create music that like will fit within these eras of of uh, music. Um, and what's even difficult c- to compare it to that thing you do, that thing you do, it's all original songs, but it's not all one band. This mm-hmm. is like a full album and more so uh, of one person that you'll, you're seeing. I mean, they basically created an entire career for Dewey Cox and this, yep. for this movie. Like, that's why I would love to see like, what are his albums? Cause I know J- Jake Kasdan knows, I know they know the history of the albums of Dewey Cox and everything. I know they know this. Mm-hmm. I think I said, I think it, I mean, again, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a parody of the genre and it's, and we talk about tropes and genre tropes in this, in this, in the show. And it's one of the private, one of the first films that really takes to task a genre and says, Hey, look at this. This always happens in these movies. Yeah. Especially like a very, very specific genre, you know, before there's, there's been, spy spoofs and monster spoofs yeah. and this one was like i'm gonna do yeah. you know those movies about famous musicians i'm gonna yeah. do that and what's and what's also kind of odd too is like as you talked we talked about the epic movies and those when it comes out it kind of feels like oh this is trying to be very much of the moment because it's like it's walk the line and ray mm-hmm. but it really is kind of everything together is that all is that it is that all you we have to say i think that about i think walk that's hard? Uh, you know I will say in the end, it's uh, it's family and friends. It's loving yourself, but not only yourself, Thomas. And traveling not just for business, of course. <laughs> the most important rule of all. Yeah. yeah. But, but I mean, did you hear the news, guys? Dewey Cox died. <laughs> Dewey Cox died. <laughs> yeah. R.I.P. You guys Dewey don't Cox. even know. You Can guys that be the end of the episode? The Black Sheep era. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can the last thing that the, uh, the episode before it cuts is just... Did you hear the news? Dewey Cox died. Did you hear the news? I just hard cut. I do got to throw it out. I don't know that. I don't even know this made the uned the the the, you know extended cut. But I specifically remember in the advertising for this film, them having a parody of Jimmy Dean sausage that Dewey at some point in his career started like a like a like a sausage like Cox sausage company oh, that's, sausage co- that's funny i mean we didn't even talk about the poster the poster's jim morrison they do yeah. which is like not, yeah. not even yeah so that's all we have for this episode make sure you subscribe to the nation podcast our podcast spotify stitcher or wherever your podcast and how already make sure you rise to review on whatever platform you listen to the show on yeah guys any any feedback we can get from you anything you can do to uh get the word out family and friends mm-hmm. hit them up let them know about the nation podcast we're here we're podcasting and we'd love to hear from you if you haven't already, make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, Hunter, thank you so much for coming on talking about Walk Hard. When I watched this movie, I'm saying it's the very end for some reason. I should have said it much earlier. When I watched this movie, I was like, yeah, this is a Hunter film. I totally What get does it. that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> Let's unpack that. <laughs> Wait, cut the music. Um, yeah. yeah I, I know your kind of style of humor, and Walk Hard just feels like, yeah, I could see High School Hunter being like, this movie rules. It did. I watched it on a, I, you know what the funniest part about me watching this movie for the first time was I was too young to rent it on my own. Yeah. I convinced the lady that I had like befriended over the years of like being a loyal blockbuster customer to just rent it to me. So I get it. I go home. I tell my dad, I'm not feeling well. I get a little portable DVD player 
and I just go sit under my under my bed mattress and like or under the like bed covers and watch this movie on a little six inch portable DVD player screen because I would not be allowed to watch it otherwise. I'll, I'll do you. I'll do you one better as as we close out here. I got a shout out. Uh, episode credits. I got a shout out. Whoever the guy was that uploaded this movie in five minute clips to YouTube in two thousand eight because uh, <laughs> wow, that's, that's how I saw this movie for the first time. Wow. Talk about that. That's a cult film right there. Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, part one of 11. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. God, remember those days? Yeah. So, Hunter, you watched it on portable DVD player, Thomas. I did. YouTube YouTube clips. I just got, I I think I bought it for Movie Gallery when they closed is what I think happened. Uh, Well, yeah, guys, next week, we're going to be talking about 2001 film, Josie and the Pussycats, our final week of our fictional band slash singer month. So stay tuned. We're almost there. Again, Hunter, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. I've had a great time. Thank you. And Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me as well. Absolutely. And for everyone listening, thank you so much. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.